every year we see year over year, 25, 33% increase in ADUs built in the state. Well, I hope that progress continues because maybe it was 10,000 this year, but it was 0,000 five years ago. And if that means 20,000 in a few more years and 30,000, 40,000, we, we can make a real dent in the housing crisis, uh, especially because most of those units are affordable by design, just by being smaller and less in demand. They're so great. You know, we did, without any public subsidy, you have more affordable units in the state of California. That's they're genius. So. Welcome to Infill. Uh, this is a Yimby podcast. I'm Rafa Sonnenfeld, Yimby Actions Policy Director, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by Steve Wertheim, who's a senior consultant with the housing the Housing Committee for the California Assembly. He works with uh, Assemblymember Buffy Wicks, who's the chair of the Housing Community uh, Development Committee and a housing champion for the YIMBY movement. Steve works in Sacramento, and he lives in Sacramento with his wife and two rambunctious daughters. And previously, he was a principal planner at the San Francisco Planning Department, working on long range planning for the city. Welcome, Steve. Rafa, thanks for having me. So, Steve, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit more about your background and uh, what you do as a housing committee consultant? Oh, boy. Uh, I can answer the latter question first. So we have a pretty exciting job here in the Capitol. There's about five of us committee consultants between the Senate and the Assembly who see pretty much every facet of housing policy come through us. And so we, we have a really important role in shaping housing policy for the state. We get to play both uh, let's say defense, um, working on maybe against bills that aren't really constructive to helping the housing policy and or shaping up those that are uh, have potential to be good policy. Um, and that's uh, we work with our chair to, to make sure we kind of hold the line on bills and they don't come out of our committee unless they're in good shape. And then we kind of also play offense and that we staff bills for for the member. And just like, for example, we'll talk about AB 2011 that's sure up at some point, but um, we basically help her staff, her legislative priorities and make them move through the legislature. So it's a pretty full-time robust job we have up here. Uh, I'm just finishing up my fourth year of work on this job. Previous to that, as you mentioned, I was working in San Francisco, uh, lived there for a couple of decades and spent a long time working in the San Francisco playing department and really trying to make housing, more housing viable in San Francisco, more development altogether viable in San Francisco. It's a very tough environment, as everyone knows, to make change and progress. And it was just put it out there. It was, it was a real turning point for us as staff when the Yumi movement came along, because for a long time, it was just a few of us within the system basically saying, hey, how about more housing? Anyone anyone here for more housing? And just, you know, crickets and no no one advocating on the outside to make that happen. So it's it's been a real pleasure in the last eight years or so, both from wearing, working in the city and now at the state level to have such a robust advocacy organization and just all these diverse voices speaking on behalf of seeing more housing in the state of California. It doesn't sound so radical, but it kind of is. Well, that's uh, really, really great to hear. And we appreciate the support. What do you attribute in terms of the the YIMBY movement? How has that made a difference in the work that you do in, in Sacramento? I mean, San Francisco, I'll start with, it's very obvious. There was people showing up to the hearings who actually spoke on behalf of supporting the projects who weren't just the developer and their paid lawyers and their paid stuff, folks who came out. Like these were just regular citizens who were like, I'd like to see more housing. Um, And it was a counterbalance to all the voices who came out who were the typical neighborhood folks um, who who spoke against any change 
And there's a real dynamic between the have and the have nots in the housing space in that condition. And that the working at the state, things are a little bit less dramatic when it comes to public testimony. And instead, it's about kind of the larger movements that get organized. And so it's really valuable to have YIMBY be one of the many voices for housing, but YIMBY doesn't necessarily represent a specific interest like developers, like landlords, like business groups, like labor, et cetera, who have a specific perspective. It's, it's the general, hey, we need more housing out there. And so it's a very good bellwether for, for housing policy as, as to what's going to result in, in more housing being built is where YIMBY stand on a position. So you mentioned you've uh, been in your current role for about four years. During your time in this position, have you noticed any trends in the housing legislation that's being introduced? Yes, lots of trends. Obviously, well, I'll talk about COVID in a second, but I'll say I, I joined in 2019 and we were about that point. That was the fourth year of what I'll call kind of the, the legislative revolution at the state level. Um, so for ever. The state basically was largely hands-off on housing policies, especially land use policy, and basically fully uh, delegated that to the cities. And the housing crisis that started in San Francisco and spread throughout the Bay Area was like metastasizing around the state. And so there was enough momentum around the state for legislators to see the need for statewide action. And so in 2016, we legalized accessory dwelling units, an amazing change from, from them not being allowed anywhere to them being allowed everywhere by right. And then by you know 27 was was a huge year in first state housing policy passage of SB 35. Lots of ways we changed the housing element process and creating an enforcement mechanism to, to make sure cities actually abided by the law. Uh, and so there's the, I think I stepped in 2019. There's already a lot of momentum within the legislature for changing housing policy, and that's good. We've we've kept that momentum up, and we'll talk about the bills that passed this year that that maintain that momentum. What I'd say is changed is my observation and, and reflected in what I've heard my boss, Assemblywoman Wicks, say is that the electoral politics have changed quickly from where it was um, a hard position for her to be pro-production only when she ran for the first time in 2018 uh, to join us in 2019. That was an unpopular position in her district and, and certainly we know in other districts. And now it's it's much easier to wear your pro-housing freak flag, you know, or fly it and, and wear it, you know, wear it proudly and and Again, it's another attribution to, to the YIMBY movement is, is the organization at, at the at, at campaign level, you know, at, at the election level and mm-hmm. getting more people into the elected space and, and providing covers, maybe the right word, maybe the wrong word, but kind of space to, to be a pro-production or educate people who are running for office on the need for more housing. And so it seems like it's a, it's safer to be more pro-production. And I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing some members who previously had been vociferously against housing, maybe softening their position or those who are on the fence, moving to a position of supporting bills like we passed this year. Have you seen like a trend in terms of a, a greater number of pro-production bills or more more aggressive or bills that, that are trying to make bigger changes in terms of adding to, to the productive capacity of the state of California? Definitely more bills. I was not here... Very, I've been here for a couple of weeks, the Brown administration, but the, the legend passed down is that it wasn't really his issue. Uh, he was about fiscal prudence and climate change, outstanding issues to be strong on, but housing wasn't his jam. And when Newsom came in, he obviously ran on a pro-housing campaign and came in. It, it didn't necessarily lay out his own personal agenda, but he, he made it very clear that we're open for business in the housing policy space. And so in the first couple of years of him being in office, I'd say there's a giant uptick 
in the amount of bills in the housing space. And, you know, not all were great, but there were certainly a lot of interest. And we saw, you know, maybe a, a doubling of the amount of bills in that space. It was a mixed blessing as a staffer. There's no more staff. <laughs> so it's, you know, when you go from analyzing 60 bills to 120, life gets pretty hectic, but it, it was definitely a, we welcome your ideas kind of space. And that that's leveled off, but at a high level, I'd say people weren't, you know, the, the ADU legislation 2016 was wildly bold. I mean, uh, SB 35, SB 50, the, the boldness hasn't been lacking. And I think even we've been passing consistently in the last seven years, some bold action, uh, but I just feel like it's kind of now the norm that people are, are aggressively looking to address the issue. Again, I, I don't have a ton of historic perspective having only been here for four years, but you know, looking at the, the data of what bills were introduced or, and what changed before, it's, it feels like we're in a new normal where addressing the housing crisis full on is a given versus being a fluke or something we don't even try to do. This year in 2022, uh, Governor Newsom signed over 30 housing bills in one day. How many uh, pieces of housing legislation did you work on in, and were analyzed in, in with, uh, with your team? What stood out to you out of those that passed or those that, that uh, died in committee? I'd be proud to say that the bills that passed are good legislation. And the ones that died in committee are a mixed bag. Sometimes they die because they're good, but the opposition is too vociferous. Sometimes they die because they're not very good. Uh, ideas or they're not baked. Sometimes it takes a couple of years for something to marinate to get the ideas right. That's okay. But the the bills that passed, there are some great bills this year, for sure. I mean, this was a banner year. I think it, it cleared some of the backlog we'd had in the previous few years where we were understandably focused on COVID and in the housing space, keeping tenants protected and minimizing homelessness and spending unprecedented sums of money on tenant protections. And, you know, of course, it was an imperfect process, but we went from spending no money on rental assistance to $5 billion and setting up a program out of nowhere to keep tents in their homes. And, and that sucked up a ton of the oxygen in the last couple of years. I'm sure we'll talk about labor issues, but that also talked, sucked up a ton of the oxygen in the last couple of years. And this was, this felt like a dam bursting kind of clearing out some of the backlog of issues that had been pent up for a couple of years. That felt good. This is an unusually strong year for a housing policy, for you know, proactive housing policy, if only because there was a lot of pent up ideas that had been run two or three times that got passed this year. At the parking bill, SB6, items like that, like La Casa down for LA, like things that had been percolating for a while became law this year. So let, let's talk about that parking bill a little bit. Uh, that's uh, AB 2097, I believe, that was introduced. I think this was the second or third attempt at getting a, a parking bill done. Can you tell us more about this this bill? Sure. Well, the basic premise is that cities tend to require parking and in some locations that are transit rich, or at least have, you know, you're, you're not car reliant per se, uh, the city requirements can greatly outstrip what is actually the market would demand. And that's a fundamental issue with our housing policy for a long time in this state is, is we've over-regulated housing such the way that the, the market is unaligned with demand. And I'm a die-in-the-wool lefty. Like it's it's weird for me to say these things sometimes, but I do recognize the over-regulation. Like the, the market is in a better position in many places to address demand. And our job is to kind of align those two things and, and with positive social outcomes and over-regulating housing to the degree that 
can't be built. It was obviously had huge negative repercussions. And one of those spaces is by requiring so much parking. Well, we know three parked cars takes up the space, the same space as a housing unit. So it's a, it's a big deal. And cities a lot of times have these arcane approaches to parking that represent a different era, right? Whether there was a correct different era or it's just an assumption that if you didn't drive, you know, you weren't living. And so this law basically said, if you're within a half mile of transit, a city can't require parking. Uh, it's And that's a big deal because those are like li- exactly the spaces where you'd expect there'd be the most other alternatives. If you have major transit, you also usually have walkability, bike lanes, connecting bus lanes, et cetera, to make it work. So it, it, I think a lot of people misread this in the public. They're saying, oh, there will be no parking. No, it just says instead of the city saying what the amount should be, the developer can determine what it's going to be. And if the developer is building for sale housing, that's a very high end, they're probably going to provide a parking space or two for each unit. But if it's rental housing, you know, there's tons of evidence that shows that close to transit, given their buildings built near transit that are overparked, that have empty spaces that, again, you could turn three of those into a precious housing unit, but instead they're sitting idle because those developments had to meet local parking requirements. So this is great. This, this is one way that a developer can say, okay, we know our market better than the city does. We're much closer to the ground. We're not dealing with 20 and 50-year-old ideas. We're dealing with the market as it sits today uh, and the future when, you know, autonomous vehicles are, you know, maybe more likely will need even less personal vehicles and parking. Let's let's just build accordingly instead of according to what the city thinks or thought at some other era made sense. So this bill was, you know, obviously we think it's going to be really impactful across the state. Uh, it was one of the the top 10 bills that EMB Action advocated for this year. And um, it was also a bill that uh, was controversial. And uh, even after it had passed the legislature, uh, we were concerned that the governor may end up vetoing it, but he didn't. He signed it. Can you talk a little bit more about why it was controversial and what what the forces against making this this change were? Even though you know all the the academic support for this bill was really strong, that that this is a good good policy that is going to actually increase the amount of affordable housing in the state. Yeah, and we didn't even mention, but it also applies to commercial properties. So you're also not overparking your office buildings when you're right next to transit, and you can you can again have more space for that. There's a general, no one likes to have less power. That's a good rule of thumb. And so when the state tells cities, no, we're going to override, there's always going to be pushback. You know, local control is a real thing. And and certainly I wish there wasn't the housing crisis that we had right now um, on many levels. And then maybe local is the right place to make those decisions. Just cities have proven incapable because of the dynamics of local politics to address a lot of issues and parking is one of them. So, but just, it, it didn't matter as parking. It was anything where it's like, hey, city, you have less control over your lands. You're going to get pushback. And then there was pushback from a lot of folks in the, I'd say, equity community, those those uh, advancing the issues of lower income people. And they took a position that this bill would undermine density bonus law. One of the reasons, so density bonus law in a lot of situations provides affordable housing or the projects that are use the density bonus provide affordable housing. And one of the reasons to lure someone into using the density bonus is the right to build less parking. And that's, that is one theory. I think the other observation people made was people build density bonus in cities that already require affordable housing. So basically all you're doing is requiring those projects to 
not build park, like use one of their precious uh, concessions to not build parking, whereas otherwise they could use that to build even more housing in some other way, shape or form. And so you're not actually winding up with more affordable units at the end of the day. And in, in other cases, these parking requirements, when you're not having a density bonus project, actually result in less housing being built. And so it's definitely an uncomfortable conversation. Our general position is to support folks who are advocating on behalf of low-income communities, and that's the lens which we we see the world through. But it's also there's so much academic research in that space pushing back, and, and there was hard for us to ignore. But I think those are the sources of the pushback. And wasn't this bill modeled off after a program that uh, was successful in San Diego that actually resulted in more affordable housing development after they had reduced their parking minimums? I actually don't know the genesis of this bill, you know, it kind of comes through our committee. I don't always like, I'm not Mm -hmm. a student of everything it comes from, but I, I certainly know from our experience in San Francisco, we, in most of the city, we had removed any parking requirements and in fact had applied parking maximums. Mm -hmm. So you, you, in downtown, you couldn't even, the developer didn't have this, they, they couldn't provide more than sometimes a parking spot for every four units. So there's more space to be done here. Um, even the developers sometimes overpark. You know, so I'd seen that work in practice, but I sorry, I don't know the genesis of, of the policy. Yeah, I actually read a really interesting paper from some economics academics at, I think it was UC Santa Cruz and UCLA who looked at uh, San Francisco's, they did a, a case study of uh, how the elimination of parking in an affordable housing development impacted the the rate of car use had two different scenarios one where there was an affordable housing project that was close to transit that didn't have parking and another one that did have parking and they found that the project with the parking tended to have more people who bought cars and used cars and and relied on cars whereas the other project they use more public transportation and these these folks had the same income levels and were had the same access to transit but but there was something about just having the parking spaces that was like inducing a demand for driving oh, absolutely I, I would say it's a case that I'm more um, amenable to you know in a, in a lower income space I mean you know driving is especially most of the state way more convenient than taking transit I mean there's certain certain pockets of the state that's not true but it's most of the states that is true so if a lower income person, I wouldn't want to deny them the right to a car and having the same access and mobility that everyone else does. But again, like the de- let the developer figure out what makes sense for that community that they're building for. If you're, if you're building for a senior citizens community or something else, uh, or like for really, really low income folks who aren't going to be able to afford a car, providing parking is pretty fallacious, but let them figure it out. Uh, mm-hmm. And then for market rate development, you're right, there is more induced demand if you provide a car. I'm, I'm less concerned about people making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, like buying a second car or whatever, and, and having more trips in that way that I'm more interested in facilitating alternative forms of transportation and not making it super easy to drive. But again, un- unfortunately, most of the state is really car determinant. You just don't want to overpark, and it's, and and especially in those special locations really near major transit where you do have a viable alternative. So as I mentioned before, EMB Action advocated for lots of pro-housing bills this year, and I wanted to specifically highlight a few of our top 10 bills that were passed. And um, I'm just curious of these bills, uh, which were uh, most exciting to you? We'll talk about AB 2011 in a little bit. Uh, we just mentioned AB 2097. That's the the parking reduction bill. Uh, there was SB 6 
uh, which is a, a companion bill to AB 2011 that provides more options for um, housing in commercial corridors. Uh, there was SB 86, which is a, a bill that makes it more streamlined to build student housing on, on campuses. AB 2234, which is sort of a technical bill for uh, speeding up post-entitlement permitting processes. There was uh, SCA 2, which is a, uh, a constitutional amendment to Article 34 to basically repeal Article 34 of the California Constitution, which is a 1950s era uh, basically racist practice of, of requiring voter approval for affordable housing that's uh, funded by uh, local governments. Uh, there was AB 2221, which is an ADU bill, AB 916, which was another ADU bill, and uh, AB 2668, which was a, a cleanup bill to SB 35, which is a bill from 2017, which streamlines affordable housing projects in cities that aren't meeting their state-mandated housing production goals. I'll have to start with SCA2 as being the first one that jumps out at me because Article 34 is so messed up, right? That, that just gives you a frame of reference for what California was like in, in the 50s and 60s, where blatant racism was pretty okay. And you had to beg the voters in the city for the right to build any kind of affordable housing at all, whether it's even inclusionary in a building or, you know, mostly publicly funded housing. It was so controversial to let low-income people live in your community. And as we know, that usually means people of color in your community that you had to beg the, the voters. And it's still the books today. People are, there's multiple elections around the state of California today, basically saying, hey, can we build affordable housing in our city? And still giving the people the right to say no. And it's an unbelievable blight on our record. So I'm very proud that we passed that constitutional amendment. Now it has to go to the voters and we're gonna have to raise a bunch of money and be really interested to see how that comes about because it's maybe not sexy and it's not gonna have like a a well-heeled special interest running to remove this, but it is such a blight on our constitution and and the way we do business and the fact that we have to beg just to build affordable housing for our low-income communities. That's pretty outrageous to me. I hope with the the fundraising to get the word out about why this is such an important law to repeal, that a lot of that should come from the the California Association of Realtors who supported this SCA2 amendment this year, uh, even though they were the organization that created it in the first place back in the 50s. Yeah, total props to them. They've done a great job in the last couple of years of, of kind of recognizing and proactively addressing some of the issues that they helped create before most of the people who are there and working that field were even alive. That's pretty cool of them. I don't necessarily know that means that they have to be the ones who funds campaign. That sounds great. I'm not a specialist in, in campaign. I just know that it's, it's, it's not as obvious as some of the other campaigns out there where you have a special interest or a couple of them who just clearly would benefit from this. And it's a, it's a tall task for all the affordable housing community to also run statewide ballot initiatives or the equity community that's always hard pressed uh, to find money. The other one, one of the other ones that jumps out at me is you flagged AB 2234 from, from Robert Rivas. We've kind of systematically found ways in the last couple of years to just make the process more rational in the housing space, you know, and focusing on the entitlement process, 
with things like ADU laws or SB 35 or AB 2162, which deals with supportive housing for the formerly homeless. Now with AB 2011, where it's just like, if this housing is in the right location, it's by right. And then with the Housing Accountability Act and all the enforcement of that, making sure that basically people aren't gaming projects. Like if you said it was okay, then you're going to approve this process, approve the bill in SB 330, other big moves in that space. And this was an interesting look at like, well, that's great. You get the project, you have the right to build it, but you still have all these permits that are necessary to build it. So like the building permit is a different process. And even though that building permit process is theoretically ministerial, there's no timeline if someone has it out for a housing project, there are so many ways to mess with it. And this was another pretty obvious one where you could just delay granting the permit indefinitely. And, and there's certainly hard stories we heard of, of projects that are being screwed with. And this sets parameters on what can be done. Are the timelines perfect? Are the parameters perfect? TBD. But it's, it's, it was a space that had not really been taken on before. And I'm very happy that that legislation passed to, to basically plug that hole. A lot of folks, when they think of the the delays of getting projects approved, they think more so on the entitlement side of things when projects have to go through lots of hearings and city council meetings and uh, maybe even lawsuits to get to get approved. But what this bill does is focuses on after all of that is settled, then the next step is actually getting the building permit, which is like a more technical thing where you have to make sure that, that the project is meeting all of the building code not just the zoning code, but the fire code and the uh, the sewer code and all, all those sorts of things. And up till now, there hadn't been a requirement for, for the building permit to be issued in any certain amount of time. So so a city that was trying to backdoor kill a project essentially could, could spend years stringing along a project with essentially not getting back to the developer in a timely manner about what changes they needed to make in order to get their their building permit issued. Agreed. Just kind of adding discipline in all these spaces, you know, and and if that forces cities to prioritize reviewing housing projects over other kinds of projects, okay. Is that a bad thing? No. Uh, through my obviously biased lens of working in the housing space. You know, we had a suite of ADU bills as always. There's also Senator Wykowski's bill, which is not on your list, um, SB867, but mm -hmm. I'm always trying to perfect the ADU space. It's It's been such a success story. I'm, I'm always careful to keep making ADUs easier to build, but also not, not doing that in a way that's going to start raising pushback. That's kind of a tension point we have with a lot of stuff around around here. It's like, okay, if things, if things are going good, don't try to make them perfect in a way that's going to annoy a bunch of people as much as like, let's, you know, stand to the radar. Like ADUs are such a great success story and, and they're by right. And there's very little pushback anymore against that law. You always stand the risk if you keep pushing policy too far. I don't, I don't think these bills did, but there was a moment where the, the bills had some clauses in there that were probably could have done more net harm than good. And it's like, let's let this field mature and really focus on the financing space and making sure lower income communities have access to building ADUs the way that wealthier communities do. And that will do more towards facilitating ADU development than kind of any of these, any of these other tweaks, but always happy to see ADU policy get more and more perfected. Um, I think some of the technical changes this year, we saw uh, AB 2021 clarifies the timelines that the ADU projects have to be approved in. And then uh, AB 916 allowed taller ADUs near transit initially. I think that got taken out of the bill later on. But, yeah, all, but all three but ADUs S kind of like yeah. not in a similar space, but 
Yeah, and the SB897 did a bunch of a little tweaks to allow higher higher ADUs and things yeah. like that. It's it, and the, one of the great things about this is th- these weren't theoretical changes. These were percolating up from the ADU development community who's like, okay, we know it's working and we know where the impediments are, or we know where there's confusion in the law. We know where a lot of space where they're on the ground. And and this is a great success story. That law only became law January 1st, 2017. And now we have a robust industry of developers and folks in this space. And that's what you want to see. You want to see, oh, it's buy right. So we can invest. It's not a boutique niche field. You don't have to be like a you know, rocket scientist, you you can just figure out, here's the formula and I'm going to figure out as a business model, how this is going to work and where it's working and where it's not working. And every year we see year over year, 25, 33% increase in ADUs built in the state. Well, I hope that progress continues because maybe it was 10,000 this year, but it was 0,000 five years ago. And if that means 20,000 in a few more years and 30,000, 40,000, we, we can make a real dent in the housing crisis, uh, especially because most of those units are affordable by design just by being smaller and less in demand they're so great you know we did, without any public subsidy you have more affordable units in the state of california that's they're genius so anything- and just for those who don't know adu stands for accessory dwelling unit and uh, that's basically another name for a granny flat or or a relatively small uh, outbuilding or conversion of a garage or, or bedroom to be a, a another apartment one bill that's not on your list that I was a big fan of is um, AB2295 from Assemblymember Bloom. We are going to miss him up here. He's a great housing hero for a long, long time. And this was a bill that makes it a lot easier to build teacher housing. So teacher housing is allowed, but school districts, they're not experts in, in housing. And their land is usually just kind of zoned amorphously or it's zoned public or some way that they have no idea what their zoning is. And so when they're trying to build housing, they don't even, they can't even partner with the developer and tell them what's possible. They have no idea. So this is kind of a little under the radar bill based on research done by um, UCLA, UCLA's Policy Lab and, and UC Berkeley at the Turner Center showing that there's so much potential development on school district lands and basically talking to the districts and being like, what's an impediment? Like, we don't know this space and we have no guidance. And this bill basically said that housing is a permitted use uh, and set the density floors and, and the height floors for housing on school district land, such that now districts can kind of get a sense of what's possible. So when they go out there and get the funding and we have funding streams, et cetera, for teacher housing, there's less uncertainty in the land use space. And we're excited because I, I, you know, the demand for teacher housing, teacher housing is very popular. It's just been really challenging to get built. Only LA and I think San Jose have figured out how to do it at this point. And there's potential to build tons and tons of units on school district lands because just a lot of really generously sized school properties in the state of California, shall we say. So that's another one. And, you know, I think we'll talk about AB 2011, you know, and maybe SB 6 in context, but of course I love SB 6 to allow housing and commercially zoned properties. It's more expansive geographically than AB 2011. And so I think it can have more between AB 2011 and SB 6, no longer will there be insufficient land zoned for housing in the state of California, which is a mildly dramatic thing to say, but it's a really big deal to just unlock tons of acres of land for housing at a high density that was maybe off limits previously. Now seems like a good time to dive into these two bills, AB 2011 and SB 6, uh, which we mentioned AB 2011 is probably the single most important bill that we advocated for this year. And uh, what it and SB 6 do are allow developments in commercially zoned areas in cities that previously 
wouldn't allow housing. And, and AB 2011 actually creates a, a by right ministerial process to approve housing at, at certain densities in, in commercial corridors, which uh, will make it more, more feasible to produce housing in a more quick, certain, certain way. It's uh, good for developers. And it also has an affordable housing component to it. I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but there are provisions in it that allow for 100% affordable housing to be developed in in basically anywhere that is a zone commercially, and then um, and then for mixed income projects, uh, those are allowed by right with a certain percentage of affordable housing along commercial corridors. Yeah, that's a good summary. Uh, you know, happy to answer any questions. Could talk about this bill all day. I dedicated my life, uh, twenty twenty two, to this bill, and pretty thrilled that it passed. You know, we, we were we were not given high probability of it passing. One, one influential person in this space told us when we when we floated the idea back in March and said, you know, you're not just shooting for the moon, you're shooting for another galaxy. Um, and that was the odds we were given basically to to land this bill. Um, and here we are, it's passed. It's going to be, you know, becomes a law in a couple of months and really gratifying. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, one of the, the sponsors of this bill was the Carpenters Union and uh, and what their interest in this bill was and and why why do we have two different bills that, that are a little bit different AB 2011 and SB 6 that that both seem to be getting at the same uh, issue of being able to develop in commercial areas yeah well, uh, so AB 6 precludes 2011 because this is the third year that idea was run and even SB 6 was precluded by a Richard Bloom bill um, that was the first one in this space that said let's rezone commercial land for mostly affordable housing. And those two bills were kind of the, the victim to a lot of the labor controversy that we've had in, in Sacramento over the last few years and, and the split between uh, the building trades and the carpenters. And the building trades have been putting forward a formula that basically requires a fully unionized workforce. Uh, and it has great in concept, but a lot of developers have staked the position saying, that's nice, but there's not enough union workers in the space. Far less than 10% of housing is built by unionized workers. It's just, it's, it's mostly an ununionized space. And it's very risky to go through a multi-year process of locking up land, designing a building, getting the approvals, getting the burning, building permits, et cetera, to get to the far end of the process and then hope that there's someone available to build the housing. And so they've been pushing back strongly for a long time. Uh, and then this year, the carpenters came along and said, we kind of agree with the developers. We're not, you know, no one's really taking up uh, this union only formula. Why don't we try a different formula that grows the pie that says, as long as you pay the workers really well and protect them from wage theft and, and train the next generation of workers, then they felt confident that they could, when they're competing based on quality, versus competing based on price, that they would kick a lot of ass, right? And, you know, it's a typical housing market is everyone's trying to find their way to cut their costs. And that comes out on the backs of labor. And the housing industry is notoriously, construction workers are terribly paid. Not everywhere and not every situation, but it's 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 pretty akin to farm workers or people working in the back of restaurants. Sometimes it's just like the wages are bad. There's a lot of wage theft. You know, it's not incorrect to say a lot of these projects are built by people you know, you're picking up at the Home Depot parking lot, et cetera. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have public works projects that are paid, you know, really well, really good wages, but that's typically not in the housing space. 
And the carpenter said, well, pay us, pay really well. And even that playing field, and then people will hire us. And if they don't, we'll go organize those sites as well. And so, you know, this came about because they basically had an internal revolution last fall. They, they changed their leadership and then came up with this new formula and came to us with it. And, and there was a lot of excitement in the capital because we've been kind of stuck in this stalemate between developers, especially affordable housing developers and the building trades. And so AB 2011 was the bill that, that basically picked up this labor formula from the carpenters. SB 6 maintained a labor formula from the building trades. And uh, in an unusually delightful outcome, instead of both bills dying because they've, they're different from each other, instead both bills passed and now provide different pathways and options for developers who now have two options if they want to see how, you know, try to build housing in communities versus not. So why would a developer choose SB6 over AB2011? What advantages does SB6 offer them? Uh, SB6 has two advantages. One, it, it covers more geographic territory. For, for affordable housing, they cover the same territory. It's generally infill uh, development sites. But for 2011, we, we focus the market rate, quote unquote, you know, the non-publicly subsidized housing along commercial corridors, basically along those main streets in your city that have lined with retail, often strip commercial office buildings, et cetera. And we pick those streets because they're the ones who either already have the transit or very easy to add bus lines down the middle of these streets. So they're typically four to eight lane roads. SB6 does not have that parameter on where the market rate housing can be built. And so there are there'll probably be sites where SB6 would work that it doesn't, AB 2011 doesn't apply. The second allure of SB6 from a developer's perspective is that it doesn't require any affordable housing, whereas our bill requires at least 15% affordable housing. And in some circumstances, you can do a little bit less affordable housing if it's more deeply affordable. In some circumstances, if it's for sale, you can provide a little bit less deeply affordable housing, but if it's uh, for moderate income housing, but you just provide more of it. So there's some options for the developers out there. But of course, we provide the, the, the buy right process. The city can't say no, there's no CEQA. And SB6, you know, maybe you're developing in a city where they already have a streamlined process or the opposition is not so strong. You might choose to use SB6 because providing 50% affordable housing is a lot of affordable housing. Um, you know, that that's in, in, a, in a super strong market like San Francisco, you know, that's doable. But once you move pretty far inland, that's a lot to ask of a development. I think one of the criticisms of doing housing policy at the state level is trying to to get at like the really uh, specific requirements that that may um, may change from from region to region or or make it more challenging from region to region to uh, to do a project. You know, some regions fifteen percent affordable housing in in a in a market rate project works, and other places it might not work. It, there are might not be a um, a developer who who sees the financial payout essentially of of doing a fifteen percent affordable project. So SB six allows some of that flexibility by deferring to the the local jurisdictions inclusionary requirements rather than having a statewide fifteen percent or so affordability requirement tacked on to allow that housing to be developed. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know. It's a state of 40 million people as diverse in every way possible as could be. And, and we agree the state is probably not the right place to make housing policy, but for the fact that, you know, the 539 or so jurisdictions of the state of California have kind of proven writ large, not in all individually, but writ large, incapable of addressing this issue. So that's why these bills have sunsets. 
And this is why they have strong data reporting requirements. Like, let's see what works, if this works, you know, if, if this is a complete failure in the Central Valley, maybe there's a lever where we reduce, you know, the affordability requirements, or maybe there's a rising the labor standards. You know, all, all we know is that we have to do something. The previous bills were insufficient and, you know, impediments that we hear again and again, lack of land for, for housing. Well, that's no longer an issue. The entitlement process is too cumbersome and risk inducing and, and just challenging. And so for these projects, no longer is that a problem. The CEQA process is, again, too risky and, and allows, it over empowers individuals who um, have a vested interest in opposing new housing, well, that's no longer a problem. And, and for board- those that don't know, CEQA is the California Environmental Quality Act. And uh, for any any project that is not by right in the state of California, where a city has discretion to make changes to a project, basically those projects are subject to CEQA in some form. There can be uh, ex- exceptions to them, either statutory or which means that there's a specific law that exempts certain kinds of projects, or, or there can be categorical exemptions where the city can say, oh, well, this is the kind of project that we can exempt. But without exemptions, then there's essentially more, more time that, that has to be involved in uh, basically having a public public hearing for uh, for an environmental impact report and and having public comment periods. And, and then uh, those projects can also be opened up to uh, lawsuits by neighborhood organizations or, or individuals who don't want a project to, to move forward. And, and they can stall projects sometimes for like 10 years in a local case that just finished up here in, in my hometown of Santa Cruz. We had a, a sequel lawsuit for a project that uh, that took 10 years to finally uh, make its way through a court of appeals before it was ultimately uh, approved. And, and the developer could move forward on that project finally after a decade of litigation. Yeah, very, very few developments can afford that. And, and many don't even try. You know, it's an unknown amount. Don't even try because they know a community is so against housing and well-heeled enough and, and vocal enough to make it impossible. And that that's that's especially the case in wealthy neighborhoods. You know, one of the other secrets about this bill is that mo- many places housing is not permitted, but where it is permitted is typically allowed in the lower income communities that don't basically have the, their voice in their own city hall to say no. And so richer communities within their own cities have effectively walled themselves off from being allowed to do build housing and, and this bill basically says, no, we're going to tear down all those walls you built. There's retail and, and commercial zone spaces in, in these neighborhoods as well. Every you know rich and poor neighborhood have those retail strips and the housing demand would naturally go to those wealthy areas that can pay more where the rents can be higher, but for uh, these impediments that, that people put up. So not only is the, isn't the lack of land no longer an issue, but where that land is, it's very importantly in these some of these neighborhoods that there's so much demand that can't be satisfied such that the demand gets pushed into lower income communities that causes the kind of gentrification displacement that we're all trying to avoid. Uh, and the final pro- perk of this bill is that, you know, no longer will a lack of a well-paid workforce be an impediment to drawing in more workers. The workforce and the construction workforce is right-sized for the market we have. So we're, we're building 100,000 units a year approximately. So we have about 100,000 construction workers. That's not going to change until people see uh, that construction is a viable job. If you're getting paid 16 bucks an hour, well, you we rather work indoors uh, with a regular shift, you know, not building your way out of a job at Starbucks or Walgreens or whatever. But if you're getting paid 40 bucks an hour, 60 bucks an hour, then construction looks really, really enticing. And we need to grow that workforce 
And so you know, through AB 2011, we've, we've attempted to do that. Now, do we know if we've actually removed all of the impediments to housing? You know, probably not. Like we don't control the cost of wood. The interest rates going up is going to make things difficult. There may be some other barriers that are unforeseen because we never even got to them. And so, you know, we're hoping with the, the, the data reporting that we're acquiring from cities every year on what's being built, that we'll, we'll get a better sense really quickly on, on whether this is working. And we're all hopeful that it's a big success story like ADUs. Uh, we're not turning away from this and, and moving on to other stuff. We're still very much watching to see what works. And as we started talking about in the beginning, there's a big appetite to, to address this issue. Yeah, we think it's it's really exciting that the Carpenters came on board to sponsor this bill and and that there is uh the labor labor movement is 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 being involved in advocating for for production and advocating for for growing their their labor force and um advocating for this hopefully a grand bargain right where where uh we're we're getting more of the housing we need and we're uh we're getting better paying jobs and 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 better jobs for for folks who who are doing this work yeah amen i don't even know if that's a bargain that's just one of those straight up win-wins and we built a really mighty coalition with ab 2011 as you know it started out the sponsors of the carpenters and, and the affordable housing developers but obviously the Yimby movement was a big in support. We had, you know, business groups like uh, Silicon Valley Leadership Group and Bayer Council and BizFed in LA advocating for this in a space where they don't normally advocate in a place where, you know, the wages are, you know, it's a strong labor bill that, that business was supporting. That's a powerful coalition. We had other labor involved like SEIU, you know, the biggest um, labor group in the state representing ton, you know, over a million workers really pushing the bill and, and, so we're really interested to see what kind of what we can do next with this group, whether it's more production stuff. Personally, I, I'm really focused on increasing the amount of funding we put into affordable housing. I don't see really a way out of our homelessness crisis until we, you know, we build tons of units in the state, but a lot of them are going to have to be publicly subsidized. And we got to put our money where our mouth is in that space. And we have to protect tenants from being coming homeless because people don't really know we, we house a lot of homeless people every day. It's just other ones fall into homelessness because the housing uh, market is such a mess. Um, so kind of we need those stopgap measures and, and long-term measures even uh, while we build housing through these other means. So looking forward to see what we can do with this coalition. moving forward. Amen. Yeah, it's a, it's a really exciting time in California and, and across the country. Thanks so much, Steve, for joining us. Um, we're so excited about all the pro-housing bills that passed this year, uh, especially AB 2011. And uh, can't wait to see how these bills will transform housing in California. And if they don't, we'll keep at it <laughs> one way or the other. Thanks, Ralph. I really appreciate it. All right. It. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Bye. If you're excited about all these pro-housing bills and you want to see more in California and beyond, please consider joining Yimby Action as a member. We fight for abundant, affordable, sustainable, and equitable communities for people across the U.S., and our members are essential to our work. Join by going to yimbyaction.org slash join.